Is the internet helping or hurting the art of typography? A writer for The Atlantic makes the case that so-called curly quotes, or quote marks as they're called in actuality, are becoming more and more an antiquity of old typesetters. We'll give you the details. Also, today I'll be diving into another brand story, exploring a brand that has a client base ranging from George Washington to John F. Kennedy. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. So in the realm of web typography, we've seen a lot of improvements over the last five to ten years to where we're able to do a lot more with web typography than we've ever been able to do before. We're able to, you know, expand and resize uh, typefaces to fit within certain viewport, viewport widths and all sorts of uh, different typefaces that we're now able to use with at font face technologies and all the different things available to web developers and web designers. It's just continued to grow and to expand. But there's one fly in the ointment. There's one thing that seems to never really go away on the internet, and it's been around for a long time. And it's these really ugly, at least they, they stand out to me like a sore thumb, but it's straight quote marks, which doesn't exist. What they are in actuality are inch marks, and you've seen them before. They're just straight, two straight lines that are supposed to be quote marks. Real quote marks, as you are probably well aware, are curved. They've got a little bit of a curve to them. Some sans serif typefaces, such as like an Arial or a Helvetica, will actually show these kind of slanted sideways rather than curly. But in the way they're supposed to appear on the internet or in any medium, is to be curled. That's how quotation marks are supposed to appear. So there's an, a writer in the uh, for the Atlantic who actually noticed the same thing and, and wrote a little bit about it. So I thought it made some really good points. So I'll just kind of uh, brush through a brief section or a snippet of the article. It says the trouble with being a former typesetter is that every day online is a new adventure in torture. Take the shape of quotation marks. These humble symbols are a dagger in my eye when a straight or typewriter-style pair appear in the midst of what is often otherwise beautiful typography. It's a small, infuriating difference. This versus this. And of course, in the article, it shows the two varying examples. Many aspects of website design have improved to the point that nuances and flourishes formerly reserved for the printed page are feasible and pleasing. But there's a seemingly contrary emotion afoot with quotation marks. At an increasing number of publications, they've been ironed straight. This may stem from a lack of awareness on the part of website designers or from the difficulty in a content management system, CMS, getting the curl direction correct every time. It may also be that curly quotes, uh, curly quotes time has come and gone. Major periodicals have fallen prey, including those with a long and continuing print edition. Not long ago, Rolling Stone had straight quotes in its news, uh, in its news item previews, but educated them for features. The quote-unquote 
smart quotes later returned. Fast Company opts uh, generally for all dumb quotes online, while the newborn digital publication The Outline recently mixed straight and typographic in the same line of text at its launch. Even the fine publication you're currently reading has occasionally neglected to crook its pinky. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that's just dumb quotes and smart quotes are just another way of differentiating between the straight and the curly. But part of the reason why this has actually become an issue is mainly due to the technology. So if we're even to flash back to the time of the typewriter, it was really difficult or it would really slow down the flow of writing if you had to stop and figure out, you know, which direction those curly quotes needed to be facing. The same thing applies to the web or a number of different word processing applications available today. It has to be able to, it has to be smart enough to understand which direction those quotes, uh, those quotation marks are supposed to be curling towards because, you know, they, they curl one direction when you start a sentence or when you start a quotation, and it curls the opposite direction when you close it. So in order to not have those mix matched, I think the kind of easy way out was just to say, hey, let's just make those straight. The problem with making them straight is that that's a different mark altogether. Uh, those straight marks are actually inch marks. Again, if we we're just to use a single quotation mark or a single straight quote mark, that would technically be a foot mark. Those are actually used and reserved for something else. So uh, we'll kind of have to watch and see how this, you know, this ongoing issue, uh, you know, is addressed with, you know, the web in general and with future word processing apps that are available today. But just an interesting thing to be aware of, an interesting thing to keep in mind from this aspect of web typography or typography in general. So if you are a WordPress user, if, if WordPress is your CMS, you are one of the fortunate ones who don't have to worry about this at all. You can just type your quote marks however you want and WordPress will fix them for you. So as WordPress continues to grow, I think you'll kind of see this start to this issue start to go away. But again, interesting thing to be aware of and to just understand some of the nuances in web typography. So today's main topic is a company a company that actually is the fourth oldest in American history uh, and has a, a pretty impressive list of clients ranging from George Washington to JFK. But before I get to that, I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about a free assessment that I now have available for you on Rightly Designed. So if you are currently building a brand or if you're planning on building a brand in the future, this is going to be a really useful resource for you. So I've put together this assessment and what it is, it outlines 10 questions, 10 questions that will help you evaluate the efficacy of your brand. Some of the things that you're doing right, some of the things that maybe you could improve to help you begin to grow and to have a greater impact on the platform of the market that you're trying to reach. As I'll be covering here on the Rightly Designed Show and with some of the other resources I'm going to be offering moving forward, one of the things I'm going to be focusing upon is the fact that a brand goes far beyond simple design elements or slogans or catchy taglines. Uh, a brand goes to the very heart and soul of everything that you do. And so those are going to be things that I highlight or some of the things that I'm going to be highlighting as you'll be able to see moving forward and especially in this assessment is that it goes to the very, as I mentioned, to the very heart and soul, but it goes uh, 
to the very internal structure and to every single aspect of your business or the brand that you're trying to build, brand building is at the heart of it all. Uh, So again, I've got this uh, free assessment that you're more than welcome to go through. And again, it'll give you a score at the end. So you'll have an idea of kind of where your brand currently ranks and possibly some areas where you can improve moving forward. So at the end of this assessment, I actually have a free PDF, which is a number of quick brand tips that you can take and put into practice today, which you'll, which again will be available at the end of the assessment. If you don't have a brand yet, if you're planning on starting one, I've actually got a link right inside that uh, brand assessment guide as you start going through it. Um, or even before you you begin the actual assessment itself, there's a link right in there that you can just click to just get directly to those tips. So you can get uh, that PDF for free without having to go through the assessment. But if you do have a brand, I highly recommend you go through it just because it will give you uh, some great tips and pointers and some areas where you can start to improve and to make that brand more impacting and lasting. So if you'd like to take that assessment or just get the PDF, you can go to rightlydesigned.com slash assessment. Again, that's rightlydesigned.com slash assessment. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496. Tiffany's, Rolex, Ralph Lauren, Ritz-Carlton. What do all these brands have in common? Quality. Often considered and categorized as luxury brands, each of these companies are well-established and well-known for having the finest products and services in their categories, with a price tag to show for it. But brands of this variety are far from new. In fact, we can take a trip back to colonial America, the 1700s, where we can find a brand that was known in its time and for years to follow as the best in its class. A popular advertising tactic of today is to shoot commercials and create print ads featuring actors and celebrities to help push a product. However, unlike the brand we'll be exploring today, one would be hard-pressed to find another that can boast a cast of customers, including George Washington, John Adams, George Armstrong Custer, Annie Oakley, and John F. Kennedy. Today's brand story is Caswell Massey. March 26, 1752, marked the beginning of a legacy. It was the day William Hunter, a Scottish-born doctor, founded what would become Caswell Massey in Newport, Rhode Island. Newport was a resort town, attracting colonial social elites, many of whom sought European-style luxuries of the time. Bearing the name Dr. Hunter's Dispensary, the store's original specialty was providing medicine for midwives. With a somewhat creative approach, however, 
the doctor was always creating new concoctions. In fact, historians credit Hunter for the invention of orange soda, something he created in an effort to make the bitter medicines of his dispensary more palatable. Dr. Hunter's creation didn't stop there, however. As time went on, he began importing fragrances from across the Atlantic. Being the concoctor that he was, he blended some of the fragrances himself. This practice led to a number of Hunter's colognes, including the number six cologne, arguably his most famous. The classic mix was an English blend of nearly 30 botanicals, including cloves, orange peel, rosemary, orange blossoms, and pine. During this time, it wasn't uncommon for individuals, especially those of a wealthier variety, to wash their face and hands with such a mixture as they considered water harmful for this practice. Among Hunter's notable customers was the first president of the United States, George Washington. Washington purchased two cases of number six cologne for Marquis de Lafayette, a French aristocrat and military officer who fought in the Revolutionary War. The president to succeed Washington, John Adams, was a customer as well. Keeping with the tradition, wife of James Madison, Dolly Madison, was particularly fond of Dr. Hunter's White Rose Blend. Despite the popularity of Dr. Hunter's creations among American patriots, Dr. Hunter himself remained loyal to the British crown. As such, Dr. Hunter left the area following the war, but not before handing his store over to the care of his assistant, an act that would begin a tradition that would last for 150 years. Number 6 Cologne found its way back into the White House when, following in the footsteps of his father, John Quincy Adams, took office in 1824. A descendant of Adams by the name of Anne Robinson would become the company's owner 175 years later. In 1833, the name was changed to Caswell and Hazard Company as they opened up a store in Manhattan. Nearly 50 years later, the company's name changed yet again when owner John Rose Caswell formed a partnership with New York businessman William Massey. The name became, you guessed it, Caswell Massey. At this point in the firm's history, they had one store in Newport and one in New York City at 25th Street and 5th Avenue. Over the span of the 30 years that were to follow, Caswell Massey expanded to 10 stores in New York City, but its flagship Newport store closed in 1906. During this time, the company's long-standing catalog, which they had introduced years earlier, saw its end, though it was to be re-released again in 1963. The Caswell Massey catalog is said to be the third oldest in American history, behind only Sears and Roebuck and Montgomery Ward. As time progressed, the company's brand would continue to become preferred among a number of noted historical figures. Before George Armstrong Custer made his last stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn, he brushed his teeth with a Caswell Massey Tilbury toothbrush. Annie Oakley and Edgar Allan Poe were a couple of others who preferred what the brand offered. Actress Sarah Bernhardt had the firm's cucumber night cream, dating from 1887, shipped to her in Paris. 
A brand staple introduced in 1840 by the name of Jockey Club would later become a noted favorite of President John F. Kennedy. In 1922, Caswell Massey re-released a fragrance uniquely called Casma, a combination of the company's name, that quickly became a fan favorite. While the scent was eventually discontinued, it made another appearance when it was re-released in 2001 for the 75th anniversary of Caswell Massey's flagship Manhattan Shop. As business continued strong for Caswell Massey, known through the early 1900s as one of the country's leading perfumers, the company was forced to do some significant cutbacks as a result of the Great Depression. After the heydays of its 10 New York City stores in the Roaring Twenties, by 1932, the company was reduced to just a single store. And in 1936, for the first time in the company's history, an exchange of money was provided for a change of ownership when it was sold to Milton and Ralph Taylor. Up to this point, the company had a long-standing tradition of being passed down to an apprentice. Keeping with the tradition as best as possible, however, it was noted that Ralph Taylor had once swept the shop floor. The Taylor brothers would own Caswell Massey for 50 years. Living up to the company's well-known brand reputation, Caswell Massey continued to attract clientele from among those well-known in American society. John Barrymore, Errol Flynn, Judy Garland, Catherine Hepburn, and Greta Garbo were among them. Continuing as well with the long list of U.S. presidents served, Almond Cold Cream Soap, a bestseller, accompanied President and Mrs. Dwight Eisenhower to the White House. As years passed and Caswell Massey rebounded, one of the company's wholesale customers launched a new company that would soon become a serious competitor. After offering to update Caswell Massey's packaging, Cyrus I. Harvey Jr. founded Cabtree and Evelyn. The year was 1972. Seemingly as a response to the rise of competition, the company decided to break from its well-established brand boutique experience by expanding to national malls. Chains opened rapidly, over 100 franchises in all, far beyond what the company could supply while maintaining the level of quality required of their finely crafted products. The move, likely an effort to expand short-term profits, nearly pushed the company to bankruptcy and had a negative impact on their long-honored brand. After recovering, however, we can flash forward to 2002, and one of the oldest companies in American history, Caswell Massey, continued on, celebrating its 250th anniversary by re-releasing limited editions of nearly all 30-plus fragrances ever sold. Noted favorite of George Washington, number six cologne, remain their top fragrance among men, a product that is still available on the company's website to this day. Threaded throughout U.S. history, from President George Washington to Dorothy of The Wizard of Oz, Caswell Massey remains a time-honored lesson about how even throughout the tempest of competition and economic turmoil, a well-crafted brand can withstand the test of time.
build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Okay, so hopefully you found that interesting and a little bit educational, taking a little bit of time to go through the history of Caswell Massey. And there's a lot of different lessons that we can take away from that. And one of them is a lesson that I mentioned in a previous episode in some detail, but I think it's worth exploring here just a little bit more, uh, just because it was, you know, something that a lot of brands go through and a lot of even well-established brands, you know, even ones like Caswell Massey, which have been around for over 250 years and have some of the you know, most recognizable clients in all of American history. But that lesson is why it is so important to stay true to your brand's core essence, the very essence of what makes your brand your brand. You know, there's always going to be something about what you do and the way that you do it that makes it unique, that differentiates it from everybody else. And for Caswell Massey, in a lot of ways, it was the fact that they were an exclusive brand. They were very sought after. They were a higher end brand uh, compared to with the, uh, what the others could offer. So similar to a Krispy Kreme analogy or a story that I told a little while back in a previous episode, Krispy Kreme was known for that whole experience of going in and watching someone make a donut and coming away with it fresh and warm in that hole. You know, that was all part of the experience and a big part of their brand. Caswell Massey was a very much a boutique. It was a place where, you know, somebody could go and there was only 10 different locations and it was, again, it was higher end. It wasn't something that you would see on every street corner and definitely not within a, a Walmart or within a mall. So obviously back, you know, uh, in the earlier days, of course, there wasn't Walmart. Um, but the main point is that it wasn't really sticking true to its brand's core essence and what they had been known as, you know, of course, a higher end, high quality product when they started to branch out into malls. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't uh, necessarily create a sub-brand of Caswell Massey that could then uh, be sold in places like malls or even grocery stores and that sort of thing. But when you actually take that brand, which has attached to it names like George Washington and John Quincy Adams and John F. Kennedy and a whole string of U.S. presidents and actors and celebrities... You then take that brand and start to sell it in a more mainstream market. It begins to lose some of its exclusivity. And again, that's the core that was at the heart of what made Caswell Massey so powerful and so interesting as a brand itself. So again, it's a great lesson to think about what is it that makes your brand different? What is it that makes your brand exclusive? And how have you built that brand over time? And how can you maintain that brand uh, as, as you move forward? I think, you know, for a brand, whether it's old or new, growth can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Growth can lead, of course, you can have, uh, you know, increased revenues and profits and things like that. But it can also lead to a brand beginning to become watered down, becoming mainstream and no longer serving its original purpose or unique differentiating benefit, the thing that makes someone choose that brand over another brand. So the last thing a Caswell Massey would have wanted back when they had, you know, a client such as, you know, JFK or a number of these different uh, actors was to have it mistaken or not 
differentiated from something you could just buy off the shelf at your local drugstore. Again, they were trying to sell a higher-end product, and it was important that throughout every single aspect of how they do business and how they expand and how they grow, that that brand essence was reflected. So again, lots of different interesting things to take away from, I think, and a lot of different lessons to be learned. So as always, if you have a question or if there's a specific brand you would like to have highlighted here on the Rightly Designed Show, one that you'd like to learn a little bit more about, I'm always happy to learn right there with you. So you're always welcome to write me a message at rightlydesigned.com slash question. You can also call 888-727-1496. That's 888-727-1496. And you can ask a question right there. And I'd be happy to consider it for for a full-length episode and see if it's something I can dive into myself to get a little bit more information and just to learn a lot more about what history can teach us about building a more effective brand. So as I mentioned also earlier in the show, uh, I do have that free brand assessment available to you. Again, you can find that at rightlydesigned.com slash assessment. If you'd like to get a little bit of a better idea of where your brand currently stands and some potential ways it can be improved. So as always, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the program today. And we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels.